Okay, well, worship continues right along when we look at the Word of God. So it's not only the singing, but it's also when we look at the Word. So this is worship right now. But we're going to read this together. Uh, please follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 12. And then uh, put your finger in chapter 14, verse 1. If you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, do not, I, don't, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Amen. Okay, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we give you glory Thank you for always being with us. Thank you for just leading this church uh, through so much, through COVID, uh, through lockdowns and reopenings, uh, just through the daily ups and downs as well. Um, but you have been so faithful. And we are here. Thank you for a glorious Easter weekend. Uh, recently, thank you for even just your servant that you sent uh, last week from Germany uh, Lord God, whatever you're doing, Lord, uh, we want to receive. And so, Lord God, today as we look into your word, please speak. And we want to hear your voice through the pages of scripture. And please, Lord God, hide me behind your presence. Uh, thank you, Father, for everyone who came here today and everyone joining us online. Bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series that we began before Easter weekend, and before our guest speaker came last Sunday. And if you are joining us recently in the last couple weeks, we're so glad you are here. But you're going to be hearing about a topic that we've been already discussing for a few months now. And so you're just kind of jumping in now if you joined us recently. And this topic is spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts are abilities within a believer that are empowered by the Holy Spirit and used to serve others inside and outside the church. And so this is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks, even couple months. And why have we, we uh, looking at spiritual gifts? Why are we looking at this? Well, the reason why is because this year the theme of the church is be the church, right? Is be the church. And Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 12. We can never be the church. It is impossible to be the church unless we know and use our spiritual gifts. He said in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12, to each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
And so for, for the believer, I mean, this is why we're here in the church. It is to serve others for their good. And then a few verses down, Paul talks about the hand and the foot and the eye and how each body part has a special function and how these body parts need other body parts all working together if the body is going to function. Does that make sense? And so Paul goes into that. And what is he talking about? Well, this is a picture of the church. The church is all of us. We are the church. And the only way the church will function properly is if every body part, and when I say body part, I'm talking about each of you, each of us. We are body parts. But if every one of us knows his or her function, in the same way each of our organs and body parts know their function. And how do we know our function in the church? How do you know your function in the church? I know, I believe and I know that thousands upon thousands of Christians go to church every single week and they do not know their function in the church. So how can you know your function in the church? Know and use your spiritual gifts. And as more and more believers do that in the church, something beautiful begins to happen. But the church begins to self-organize. It begins to organize almost magically by itself. Of course, it's the Lord doing it. And it begins to function properly. You know, I shared how many years ago before starting this church, I read so many different books on church planning, took two back-to-back semester-length courses on church planning, learning about how to organize a church, and all I really need to hear was spiritual gifts. That's all we really need to understand is spiritual gifts. Do you know your spiritual gift? Are you beginning to exercise them? If you are, then the church is going to get organized. You know, the picture I get is kind of like stem cells within the body. Many of you guys are in medical school or in medicine. You know what this is. But I remember back when my children were still in uh, their mommy's tummy, I remember seeing an ultrasound of each and every one of them at around six weeks old. And already at that stage, it was amazing, but there was a heartbeat and there was a little outline of a small little embryo. But just a cluster of a few stem cells had already begun to self-organize into different organ cells. And then these organ cells would later become full body parts and eventually a full-grown human being. That's how human beings are born, in case you didn't know. But that, that's what happened with each of my children. And I believe that is basically happening whenever people discover and use their spiritual gifts inside the church. Literally, you are going from being a stem cell, kind of an undifferentiated, generic cell, to now a very specialized cell, functioning properly and bringing organization to the whole church. So that is literally what is happening. So this is one reason why we're looking at spiritual gifts. But it touches on so many other things as well, right? More than just organizing the church. But they impact everything from your own personal identity, and we're going to look at that more later today. But this is the most personal thing you have, your own identity. But it impacts that all the way to God's redemptive work throughout the world, the most global thing you can imagine. So everything from the most personal to the most global, spiritual uh, gifts touch on all of that. So what do I mean? Well, if you want to know who you are in Christ... Have you ever wondered, how has God made me? What am I supposed to do in this world? Well, you should never wonder as a Christian because all you have to do is discover and use your spiritual gifts, and you'll know. Maybe you've also wondered, how can I be a part of God's redemptive work in the world? What what should I do to join God's work? Do I go to Malawi? Do I go to Guest Chef? What do I do? Or just stay here in, in the church on Sundays and serve? What do I do? Well, this is something much larger than our personal issues, right? This is something global. Well, even that, just know and use your spiritual gifts. I've been saying this, but every single time the kingdom of God is advancing in the world, you know what's happening? Somebody somewhere is using their spiritual gifts. 
So it touches on so many different things. I mean, the biggest thing to the smallest thing and everything in between. So these are some reasons why spiritual gifts are so important. This is why we're looking at them. They're very necessary. And in order to kind of get a handle on spiritual gifts, generally, what we've been doing is we've been looking at different questions. So we've been looking at these questions, trying to answer them week after week. And there's, in fact, about seven different questions. But they are, why are spiritual gifts necessary? What are spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? Can you lose your spiritual gifts? How many spiritual gifts are there? And then the last one we saw is, are the miraculous gifts for today? And by the way, the Bible's answer to that is yes. All right, so that's what I've been talking about. And if you miss any one of those uh, sermons and the answers to those questions, we're not going to review them today, but you can go online. You can find them on our website. But that's what we've been going through week after week, all these questions. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at our final question. And this is going to take a few weeks. But we're going to begin to look at our final question, which is how do I discover my spiritual gifts? Amen? So how do I begin to finally discover and use them? Now, before we even look at this, we are never commanded in Scripture to discover our spiritual gifts. You don't find that command anywhere. But I believe whenever the New Testament teaches on spiritual gifts, it's implied. It's implied. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, all the way to chapter 14, Paul is dealing with a church that has become obsessed with spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues. This is why he's writing this portion of the letter. And you would think, based on what was going on, they're going bonkers over spiritual gifts. Paul would just pull the plug on them and say, stop it, everyone. No more spiritual gifts for you, right? You would expect him to say that. But instead, he doesn't do that. But he teaches them about spiritual gifts. And he mentions by name several different kinds of gifts that they should actually have and exercise. But listen, verses 8 through 11. Paul said, To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul there is mentioning several different spiritual gifts by name. And then he tells the Corinthians, God has portioned them out. He's actually sprinkled them. He's distributed them to all of you as he's pleased. So in other words, all of you guys have some of these gifts. Now, why would he do that if he didn't expect the Corinthians to actually discover what those gifts are and begin to exercise them? Remember, they had become obsessed with just one gift, namely tongues. So Paul's entire point in teaching on these gifts for them was for them to discover all the gifts. Don't just focus on one gift, tongues, but discover all the gifts and use all of them properly. So that is the thrust of his entire teaching on spiritual gifts in this letter. So what am I saying? Even though, even though the Bible never mentions this command, discover your spiritual gifts, it's implied. It is implied throughout Paul's entire teaching in this letter. It's even implied in Paul's command to the church in 1 Corinthians 14.1. Okay, listen to what he commanded. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So that's a command from God through Paul. And how are you going to eagerly desire spiritual gifts? Have you thought about that, that that's a command from God? You should desire them eagerly. 
Well, how are you going to do that if you don't know what gifts you have? If you're going to eagerly desire them, you need to first discover them, right? So this is implied all throughout the teachings in the New Testament on spiritual gifts. I think you get the point. Okay, even though you never find that command directly, you won't find a verse that says discover them. You need to discover them if you're going to desire them and begin to use them, all the different kinds, whatever ones God gave you. So every believer in Jesus Christ should discover their spiritual gifts. It is a command from God. This is not optional. And we must not only discover them, but begin to use them for the glory of God and for the church. And so again, this is a command. So then, here's the big question. If this is not optional, this is a command from God, then how do you do that? How do you go about discovering your spiritual gifts? Is there anything we can do to begin to discover our spiritual gifts? And the answer, thankfully, is yes. Okay, there are many things we can do. There are at least six different things we can do. There's an entire process you can walk through. And today, we're only going to look at the first one, kind of laying the foundation. It's going to be a little bit more just kind of prerequisites. And then next week, we're going to get into the real practicals of how to discover these gifts, the gifts that God gave you. But there are are six, at least six different things that we could begin to do. This, these are steps. But here they are. Number one, receive from Christ. They're all going to have an R. Number two, research the gifts. Number three, risk new opportunities. Number four, reflect internally. As you begin to discover the gifts and use them, reflect what's going on inside. Number five, rate your fruitfulness. Number six, reach out to the church. Ask the church for feedback. Yeah, how's it going in your eyes when I use these gifts or when I do this or that? And so those are the at least six things that we can do to begin to discover our spiritual gifts. Receive, research, risk, reflect, rate, and reach out. And these steps, they're not from me. The wording is mine. I came up with the wording. But these concepts are from different teachers who have taught on spiritual gifts. And for the most part, all of them more or less have all the same steps. Okay, as I read different books and read different authors, they pretty much have the same things. So six steps to discover your spiritual gifts. And again, we're only going to look at the first one today as more of a prereq. And then starting next week, we're going to look at the more practicals. But before we even begin to discover our spiritual gifts, this is the first thing you got to do. And we can't skip over this. This is very important. We must receive from Christ. Okay, you must receive from Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it should be obvious, before you can discover spiritual gifts, you must first have spiritual gifts from Christ. You can't discover something that you don't have. If you want to know what spiritual gifts you have, inside, within you, you must first receive them from Christ. And how do you know, or how do you receive spiritual gifts? Well, you must become a believer through repentance and faith in Christ. Okay, we can't skip over this, but this is very important. Ephesians 4, 7 through 8 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So here it says Paul, through Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus gave gifts to men and women. And then later, or I'm sorry, earlier in Ephesians, Paul makes it very clear who these men and women are. So who got these gifts? Jesus poured out gifts to men and women. Who are these men and women? Well, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here, the gift of God is not talking about spiritual gifts. It's talking about salvation, the gift of salvation. But this is the person, or these are the people who have spiritual gifts. They are the ones who have received the free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. These are the only people who have spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts are really gospel gifts. They come into your life when you hear and believe in the gospel, genuinely, in your heart. And we can't skip over this, even though it sounds very basic. This is very important. I remember hearing the testimony of this one pastor, but he shared how when he first took over his church, that he's pastoring even today, many, many years ago. But he said the first thing God led him to do was to preach the gospel to his very own church and to convert his own church members. And he said to his own surprise that even the leaders, even some of the elders were unconverted. And so that's one of the first things that God led him to do. And so this is a very important point. But I can't just stand here assuming that we're all Christian and we all have spiritual gifts. And so here's how you discover them. No. But I think this is more common in churches than pastors like to admit. But there are many unconverted people sitting within churches week after week. Churches are filled with unconverted people. And this is not a bad thing necessarily. We want non-Christians to be within the church. We want them to hear the Bible's teachings and the gospel. But we don't want it to stay that way. So we can't assume just because you heard a message on spiritual gifts, you are now ready to discover them. We can't just assume that. You may not have any spiritual gifts to discover because you may have never truly repented and put your faith in Christ. And so we must focus on this. But, but what do we mean by repent? Okay, repent of what? Well, we must repent of sin, but Paul gets very explicit in Ephesians 2.9. Okay, what we need to repent of. He said, this salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. So here Paul tells us, if you want to be converted and receive spiritual gifts, and later on he talks about the gifts in Ephesians 4. But if you want to be truly converted and receive spiritual gifts, you cannot boast any longer. You need to be somebody who no longer boasts. And the reason is because the sure sign of an unconverted man or woman is deep down in their hearts, they boast to themselves. I'm all right. I'm all right. They look around and they see that, hey, I'm not as bad as the people around me. And they think, I am a good person. And if there is a God, if there is a heaven, then chances are I'm going there. And so this is what they think. They won't say it out loud. I mean, we're too polite for that. But deep down in our hearts, quietly, we go around thinking, I'm all right. I'm all right. Day after day, they find security, comfort, hope, in the belief that they are good people. I am okay. Maybe even religious people. And so that's the unconverted person. And that has to be the unconverted person because the gospel says the opposite. Again, listen. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the gospel says Jesus had to come and live the perfect life in my place. And then he had to die on the cross in my place because I'm not all right. Okay, that's what Paul is saying here. Okay, not in a million years could I be good enough, perfect in all my thoughts, in all my motivations, in all my actions. Okay, that's the requirement to go to heaven. Not in a million years can I be perfect, can I be all right in that way to go to heaven. So if you want to be truly converted and receive spiritual gifts, you have to repent 
first of all, of your boasting. Your quiet, polite boasting deep in your heart that will cut you off from God and cut you off from eternal life. Again, this kind of boasting that I'm all right. I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm better than a lot of people, a lot of my friends even. I go to Promise Church. I I go to church or any other church. And I am all right. And as long as that boasting is on our hearts, and that's truly the real you, then we are unconverted. And so this is what we need to repent of. And so have you repented of that? So again, this is all prereq. Before we can even discover our gifts, we need to be converted. Have you repented of that kind of boasting? And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, in your heart of hearts, as you go around your daily lives, are you thinking, you know, I'm not all right? But because of Christ, I'm all right. He is my only source for forgiveness. Today I fell into sin, but because of Christ, yes, it's shameful. Yes, I feel bad about it. But because of Christ, I have hope, right? I have forgiveness because of Christ. He is my only source of righteousness because of Christ. I could look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I can live today because of Christ. Not because of anything I've done or didn't do, but because of him, I'm all right. Is he your only hope for eternal life? Not in a million years can I ever meet up to God's standards and go to heaven, but because of Christ, I will have eternal life. I will be in heaven. And if you can answer all of those questions, yes, yes, Christ is my only hope, my only righteousness, my only forgiveness, then you are a converted person. You are. So again, this is just all pre-wreck, but we need to be truly saved if we're going to have spiritual gifts and discover them. But how do you know, right? How do you know you've truly crossed that line? How do you know if you've truly received Christ in this way? Well, one of the clearest ways you're going to see evidence of this is your desires. So look at your desires. But you might still look like the same person on the outside, but on the inside, your desires are going to be radically transformed. They're going to be changing day after day. But you're going to be going from desiring sin to desiring it less and less. You most definitely will sin. We will continue to sin. But it's no longer fun, right? It's no longer enjoyable. But after you receive Christ, after you know he is my only hope, he truly, you have received him, you are converted, then sin, you're going to still sin, but when you do, it's gross. You get this gross feeling inside. That's the only way I could describe it. And that gross feeling, I believe, is the Holy Spirit grieving within you. The same Holy Spirit who has given you gifts, he is grieving within you. And I'm not talking about when you only sin in ways that are clearly bad, like maybe cursing or doing drugs, but I'm talking about even boasting about the things that are good in your life. All of that becomes gross, but you have less desire for it. So that's one desire that changes. Here's another desire, but your desire for the world, it becomes less and less. You have less interest in the world. And there are many good things in the world. There are many things that are legitimate. They're perfectly fine to enjoy. But after you become truly converted, you begin to look around and you realize, you know what? Yeah, there are a lot of good things, but there's nothing as beautiful and delightful and satisfying as God. And once you realize that, naturally, what's going to happen? Your desire for those things begins to fade. and Your desire for God begins to grow. Right? Your heart always goes in the direction of your desires. If you find God more desirable, more beautiful, more delightful, you're going to go in that direction. So you're going to clearly see that. See, I'm trying to give you guys kind of a litmus test, an evidence, like, you know, a scale of how do you know if you're converted? So do you see these desires changing? 
you will go from having a desire, no desire for God, I should say, to now having this increasing desire for God. You just want to be with God. You want to pray more and worship more. You want to be in his word. You want to just read the word. Before, the word of God is so boring, right? I remember talking to one of my high school friends long ago, and he's like, oh, the Bible is so boring. And even when we go to church and sing these songs, I mean, these songs are so boring, right? I'd rather listen to, like, Taylor Swift or something else. I don't know what he was listening to, but, but I'd rather listen. I mean, these are so boring. But once you become converted, what happens? Well, maybe these songs aren't as good as Taylor Swift. I don't know. I have nothing against Taylor Swift. But, but the reason why they are so good is because of the person they are about. Right? When you're in love and you're falling in love with somebody, I mean, you start singing about that person. And you, have, you might have a horrible voice. The song doesn't even rhyme. It doesn't matter. It's the most beautiful song, right? Because it's about the person you love the most. And so these desires are changing. You go from having very little desire to go to church. Why would I go to church? Okay, maybe you faced that as you were trying to invite people out to Easter two weekends ago. It's like, why would I go there? So now suddenly you regularly want to go to church. Why? Because that's where God is. Of course, God lives within you. But this is where I see God more overtly. It's more obvious that God is there to worship God, serve God, be with God's people. That's where I'm going to meet God, encounter God. So you get drawn to that. See, again, these are all evidences of a converted person. See, I'm not going to just assume and skip over this. But do you have these changing desires within you? If you don't, it might be because you're not converted. You are a non-Christian sitting in a Christian church. But if you do see these desires growing more and more, then yes, that could be an evidence of genuine conversion. So this is a picture of the converted person. None of those desires save you, but any one of them can prove that you are saved. That you are saved. So this is the first step in discovering your spiritual gifts. But have you received Christ in a way where you see genuine transformation happening in your life. Because if you don't see that, if you're not assured of that, then I would say that's the first step. Don't even think about spiritual gifts. Because you don't have them. Chances are you do not have spiritual gifts. So have you truly repented of your boasting, deep down, quietly in your heart, that you're just fine, I'm okay? And have you repented of that, and are you now truly looking to Christ? So that's the first thing we must receive from Christ. But here's the second thing that we must receive. And this is... Very important as well. But a true identity in Christ. So after you have received salvation in Christ, now you must receive a true identity in Christ. So even before jumping into spiritual gifts, we need to be firm in our identity in Christ. And why is that? Well, the reason why is because earlier I said spiritual gifts can be very powerful in shaping your identity and knowing who you are in Christ and knowing what am I supposed to do in this world. Well, spiritual gifts can help you discover all of that. But like any other identity, unless we are firmly rooted in Christ, our identity through spiritual gifts, they can actually enslave us. And then over time, it can even crush us. Okay, so what am I talking about? Okay, why would an identity like an identity in spiritual gifts do that? Well, here are some definitions of identity that I've come across. You need to understand what an identity is and what it does in us, if you're going to understand that. But an identity is your sense of self. Okay? It's your sense of worth. It's how you see yourself in relationship to others in the world. So, for example, you know, a few of my identities is I'm a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a husband. So those are all identities I have in relationship to others. 
But that's one definition of an identity. It is who you are in relationship to others. It's also the stable core of who you are. It's what identifies you as you, no matter what context, what situation you're in. You could be at work, you could be at school, you could be at home, you could be here at church, but you are still the same person. Why? It's because of your identity. So if I'm Roy at church, then I'm also Roy at home, I'm also Roy in public. It should all be the same. It should be the same identity. Why? Because identity provides that stable core. It's the core of who you are. So you can begin to see identity is very important. This is why human beings are always looking for an identity. Without even realizing it, they are always trying to build up their identity for themselves. Think about children who were abandoned when they were young at birth. Later on in life, we've heard many stories like this, but they end up looking tirelessly for their biological parents. Sometimes they go to great lanes. They'll travel the world trying to look for their biological parents. I remember my mom, she used to watch this show. It was a Korean show of adopted kids looking for their biological parents. I remember sitting through a few of them, and it's very sad. (laughs) It's a very sad, moving show. But it was very obvious after watching a few of those episodes, all human beings long for this. Why why were they doing that? It's because they wanted to know their identity. They were wanting to seek out their identity and build up their identity. And so all human beings have this natural need and desire for it. And we usually do it subconsciously. We're not even aware of it. So whether it's your work or your grades or your school, how much money you make, the way you look, the house you live in, how much your parents loved you, I mean anything, name anything and everything, we will look to those things to try to get an identity from them. That's just how human beings are. And again, you're not even thinking about it. You're just doing it. Okay, this is my identity. This is my identity. You're just looking for things, right? All the time. And so this has been going on since the time of Jesus, but here's what's different in our time, in our modern time. And it's very, very bad. But for the first time, perhaps in history, people now assume that their identity is whatever that they feel inside. Whatever's going on on the inside, they assume that is my identity. I remember reading this book. I'm still reading it, actually. Carl Truman, he's a theologian and historian. But he said in one of his books, and he talked about his grandfather. But he said, when my grandfather was a young man, this phrase... I'm a woman trapped in a man's body would have made no sense to him, absolutely, whatsoever. He literally wouldn't have understood that sentence. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. But today, that statement is just seen as a statement of fact in our day. So if you were to hear that, a lot of people hear that, they go, yup, it's true. Irregardless of whatever their person's biological sex is on the outside, they go, yeah, she's a woman trapped in a man's body. And why is that true? Well, the reason why is because that is what that person feels like on the inside. And so that's the way our culture understands identity. Whatever you feel on the inside is real, that's real. So you're a man, but you feel like a woman on the inside? You're a woman, right? You're a man, but you feel like, or the other way around, I'm getting confused here, but it's so confusing, right? But that, that is who you are, right? I mean, there are some people even doing this with ethnicity. I remember reading about this one Caucasian woman who felt like she was African-American on the inside, and she began to live her life as if she was African-American and went to a historic black school, and she began to live this lie, essentially. But why is that? Well, that's just how I feel on the inside. That is my experience on the inside, and who are you to tell me that is not real? This is real. This is what my identity is. And so what can that be other than the logical conclusion of a culture that repeatedly tells us that your identity 
mainly comes from your inner feelings and your inner experiences. Okay, this is just a logical conclusion of it. And so we've been hearing this forever, okay, as long as I can remember, in TV shows, songs, movies, just be the real you, live your truth, right? This is what we hear all the time. How many times have you guys seen this in a movie? One character stares straight at another character in the eyes and says, you got to do the right thing, just do the right thing. And almost always, what is the right thing that they're being encouraged to do? Be yourself, right? That's always the right thing to do. You got to do the right thing, right? Just be who you are. Be yourself. Doesn't matter what your family says. Doesn't matter what everyone else says. You got to be true to yourself. And so what does this mean? It just means you got to be true to the way you feel on the inside. Why? Because that's what's real. Okay, that is your identity. And yet, if we try to get our identity in this way, it'll cause chaos in our lives. And just be patient with me because I'm going to connect it all the way back to spiritual gifts. But see, we need to understand this because if we don't understand how identities get formed, especially in our time right now, we're going to just jump into spiritual gifts and now it's just going to become more of the same. We're going to take something that is holy from God and now it's going to become something that is just completely of this world. Just causing more chaos in our lives. Well, I have this gift and you have this gift. That's exactly what's happening with the Corinthians. They were actually very modern. They were very advanced for their day. But it will cause chaos in our lives if this is the way we form our identities. You know, Tim Keller, he's taught a lot on this topic, spoken a lot on this topic, but he talks about this chaos. Okay, why this form of identity, getting identity in this way, causes chaos. But he mentioned a few different ways. Let me just mention them as well. But first, it causes chaos because our feelings on the inside are oftentimes in conflict with one another. So how do you look within yourself and derive your fundamental core identity from how you feel on the inside? Because our feelings are oftentimes in conflict. So for example, have you guys ever felt this? But I want to be a faithful Christian at work. But at the same time, you have a lot of coworkers who like to have fun doing certain things. And you're like, but I also want to be popular with my coworkers. So what is that? That's a conflict in identity. That's a conflict on feelings on the inside. So who's the real you? Are you a faithful Christian or are you a guy who's popular at work? It's hard to know, right? How many of you guys have felt this? I want to be a mom to my kids, and I want to raise my kids, but I also want to be a very successful lawyer. Who's the real you? Is it this feeling? Is it this feeling? So oftentimes they're in conflict. So again, as you begin to try to look within yourself to form this identity and this core, stable sense of self, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be chaotic. Here's another reason. Our feelings on the inside are unstable because they're always changing. So it's not only about, oh yeah, they're in conflict, but as you begin to grow and develop and mature and just experience life, things change, right? I remember reading, I like statistics for some reason, but I, I always write them down. But I remember reading the average undergrad at a UC, so that includes all you UC Riverside people, but it doesn't count UCBU people, so UCBU people are okay. But all you undergrads at UC, on average, take six and a half years to graduate. Six and a half years? I was like, really? That seemed a little extreme. I knew a lot of friends who took five, five and a half, but six and a half. And the reason why is because they are changing their majors multiple times. So what is happening? Again, it's not a bad thing. It's not going to make you a sinner. But the reason why that's happening is because it's unstable. You are simply unstable inside. Okay, one, one, one year you're a biochemist. The next year you want to be a, a medieval poet. I mean, you're just changing, right? It's like, what's going on, right? Why, pick, a, pick a major. All right, Asian American history. I'm gonna, <laughs> Asian American studies, I'm just going to be that. But, but just pick one, right? But we can't because it's unstable. 
But it doesn't end with just students. But one labor report said the average person after you graduate will change careers five to seven times in their lifetime. You literally will not only study medieval poetry and then biochemistry, you will literally become those things, right? You are going to jump across a huge chasm to go from one job field to another job field. Why is that? Again, it's not, it doesn't make you a sinful person. It's just you're unstable. Unstable. My wife and I, we like saying that word. I don't know. <laughs> unstable. You are so unstable. But anyway, people are just unstable. They are unstable inside. <laughs> I don't know. I thought about, okay. Unstable, okay? We are unstable. So not only do people change their careers five to seven times in their lifetime, 30% of the total workforce, okay, listen to this, will change their jobs every 12 months. So on average, five to seven times, people will change their careers, but a third, almost a third of that group of people will change their jobs every year, every 12 months. And then you go on into marriage and married life, and the instability continues, but half of all marriages overall in the U.S. end in divorce, and so you guys know that. So what is that? Well, this is a picture of instability on the inside. Why are people living lives that are so like up and down and all over the place? It's because we are like that on the inside. And so again, here's the point. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you sinful. But what it does is, how can you derive your identity from that? Right? How do you look inside of yourself and say, that is me. Oh, here's me. Oh, here's me. Right? It just keeps moving around. So who, who are you then? Who really are you? And so here's another second reason. Third reason, your identity is actually shaped more by your context than you know. It is more shaped by your context than you realize. In fact, it's actually an illusion to think that, no, I have the stable core inside of me, and that's who I am, and it never changes. That is so not true. That is so not true. Okay, if you lived, let's say, a thousand years ago, guaranteed the things that you're thinking about doing and the things that you are ashamed of doing the things that you want to do, they're going to be radically different. In some cases, completely the opposite from right now. The things that were shameful a thousand years ago are not shameful today. The things that are good back then are kind of shameful today. And so you exert different parts of you as if that is me. So for example, going back to that example of being a man trapped in a woman's body, I mean, even 50 years ago, 80 years ago, I mean, would you be walking around telling people that? No. No. I mean, that would be totally, like, nonsensical to the majority of the people. And so it's like, no, oh, no, no, that is not me. And yet today, that is me. Well, that's the real me. And yet these things are so drastically different from era to era. And so, again, what is this? This is a picture of instability. It's all instability. So what does all of this have to do with spiritual gifts? I thought we were talking about spiritual gifts. Well, the reason why I'm covering this is because... In a culture that continuously tells us that our inner feelings and experiences are the primary basis for our identity, okay, in that kind of a setting, spiritual gifts can become just another inner experience that you're trying to build your identity on. Okay, guaranteed. If you don't understand this, if you don't have this firm identity rooted in Christ first, then you're going to be like, oh, I just want to know who, who am I, right? What are my spiritual gifts? And it just becomes this spiritual grid that you lay on top of this other grid that's already operating that has nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with God. Where your inner feelings and inner experiences is where your identity comes from. And now you're just going to add spiritual gifts to that whole thing. Well, I experienced this with God and I, I'm doing this and this is who I really am. 
and it becomes just more chaos to the pot, right? It's just mixed in, more chaos. And so if your spiritual gifts are getting noticed, then that's the most incredible thing you can imagine. And yet, if it's not being noticed, or let's say it's being less noticed than the other person, oh my gosh, you hit the floor. And so rather than spiritual gifts becoming this core part of your identity that you use to glorify God and serve God, now what? What is going on? Your spiritual gifts are causing this to happen. Oh my gosh, I am so happy today. Why? Because I was speaking and giving a Bible study and everybody was just hanging on my words. I am just so happy. I love who I am. <laughs> I love how you made me God. It's really a prayer of saying I love who I am. <laughs> but I love how you made me God. And then the next week you give the same Bible study and nobody's paying attention. Oh my gosh, I'm worthless. Am I even a Christian, right? And so spiritual gifts become a weapon. is weaponized against you rather than becoming this beautiful thing that you're using to serve, this instrument. So it's never about what you simply have, but it's about what you have more or less than the other person. I think C.S. Lewis said that in Mere Christianity. But it's always about you comparing with others. Why? Because when you compare, it causes certain feelings to get stirred up inside of you, and that's me. Right? Those feelings point to your identity. Okay, that's where you believe your identity comes from, how you feel inside, your experience inside. And yet, here's the beauty of the gospel. Okay, this is what we need to understand before we begin to discover spiritual gifts. But our true identity in Christ is something completely other. It is completely different. But look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. But we see the key difference in an identity rooted in Christ versus an identity that's rooted inside of whatever's going on in here. But here's the key difference. The identity we have in Christ is given, not earned. This is so clear, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. These aren't even works that you're going to go find on your own. No, they're already prepared beforehand. They're given to you, that you should walk in them. So do you see that? Here's the key difference between an identity rooted in Christ versus an identity that you're getting on your own, especially inside of you, is that one is earned, right? Every single day I got to figure out who I am in here, my feelings, my experiences, and what works and what doesn't, and you're trying to earn and build this identity. Versus, here's an identity just given to me. It is given to me by God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you are not God's child. It's just given to you. And not only are you saved and God's child, but now, by grace, you have been given all these works to do beforehand. You don't even have to decide what works to do. God has already laid it out. You just begin to discover and use your gifts. You're going to start doing those works. God has laid out for you. So do you see that? It's given. It is not earned. And here's the beauty of that kind of an identity. It is stable, right? It is stable. It is so different from the identity that the culture tries to give us continuously that we've actually, frankly, received from the culture, one that we're trying to get from within us. But this is so different because the identity from Christ is stable. This is not unstable. This is stable. It is unchanging. It is unchanging. And so again, I think a lot of us, we've heard this before, but it's got to become that reality. Okay, in this sense, it's good to have an inner experience. You need to have an inner experience of this. But it needs to become real within us. That I have this unchanging, stable identity in Christ. Why? Because I don't earn it. It is given to me. 
the person that is the most, the greatest person in my life I can imagine, the person who has the most influence over my life, the person who is the greatest throughout the world, that person sees me in this way, that is an unchanging identity. You know, a lot of people have written songs about this, but everyone longs for unconditional love. Well, this is the unconditional love that people are looking for. You know, recently we saw this movie, was this Sing 2? I think Sing 2. And Bono was a big lion in that movie. And at the very end of that movie, he sang that famous song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I really don't know what Bono's talking about, but I'm going to imagine that he's talking about the true love, the unconditional love of God. Okay, he still hasn't found what he what he's looking for. But the human heart is longing for that. Why? Because that is the only safe place, the only stable ground upon which you can begin to grow and flourish, especially in your identity. And so this is what Christ offers. It is unchanging and it is stable. And so this is the only foundation upon which you can truly exercise your spiritual gifts. And so this is why we need to cover this first. But are you converted? Because if you are truly not converted, then you have no spiritual gifts. I want this to apply to everyone, but it does not apply to you. Okay, next week, as we jump into the practicals of how to discover them, it, it won't apply to you. You need to be converted. Do you see the transformation of those desires? And then secondly, have you received this identity in Christ? Or are you still living out your life like everyone around us in our time? Okay, looking inside of you, looking at your feelings, your inner experiences, and drawing your experience from that. Well, that's real. That is not real. And I'll prove it to you because next year it will be different. And the year after that, it will change again. That is not real. And so what identity then can you have that is rock solid? It is the one in Christ. And so, you know, we're coming to a close, but I've experienced the freedom of having spiritual gifts flowing out of that identity versus a different identity I used to have. But one of the gifts that I believe I have is teaching, and I've mentioned this before, but the spiritual gift of teaching. And I remember, I used to even talk about having your identity rooted in Christ. And I remember God convicted me so hard. But I remember preaching this sermon one time. I think it was early on when the promise first started. None of you guys were here or hardly any of you. And I remember I talked about identity and having it in Christ and how that's the only source of living your Christian life. And then I remember right afterwards, I was talking to some brother, right? Somebody came up to me and started talking to me. And I could not even hear what he was saying. And I remember at one point, it was very embarrassing. I'm like, huh, what, what? And I totally blanked out. And the reason why is because the entire time I was worried about the sermon that I had just preached and how I felt like it hadn't really gone well. And I was all wrapped up in that. And I just got done saying that your identity is not in those things, but it's in Christ. And yet, even in my flesh, in that moment, I couldn't break free of that. Okay, I couldn't break free of that. I was all wrapped up in my mind on how I did and how I came across and did people receive it? Did they appreciate it? Did they like it? And because I was so worried about that, I couldn't even hear the person talking to me in that moment. And yet over the years, as I've walked with Christ, little by little, I'm here to tell you that your identity does change. It does change. I remember not too long ago talking to somebody and then he mentioned like something a little bit critical about my sermon and I literally walked away going, thank you for that, and I just shrugged. <laughs> I was like, okay, oh well. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. And so you see that transformation. But it's not just in these little things, right? It's not just in, oh, yeah, how I exercise this one particular gift. But your identity can radically be transformed as you begin to look at how it is truly given, not earned. What Christ has truly done for you. And I wish I could share this story. Maybe you could hear it on another day if the person came here and shared it. But there is somebody very close to me in my life. 
And I literally saw him go from being suicidal and having no reason to live, feeling very worthless in his life for various reasons, to after experiencing God in a powerful way. And I believe he experienced him on the mission field. But he went to missions, and then when he came back, he experienced God in such a powerful way, he knew that his identity was in Christ. And from that point on, it completely transformed his life. He went from literally being suicidal, not even going to church ever, to now committing himself, getting baptized, becoming a regular churchgoer, even beginning to serve, and now he's a disciple. He's walking with the Lord. And so these are the prereqs. This is the foundation upon which we need to build our discovery of spiritual gifts. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. Today we're going to have communion. And so... I think it was perhaps more appropriate that we didn't jump into practical how-tos, but we looked at what Jesus did for us first because it's Communion Sunday. But this has to become real to you, brothers and sisters. But you need the true saving grace of Jesus Christ in your life. You need to be converted. Those are the only people with spiritual gifts. And second, you need to have a firm identity. A firm identity in Christ, in Christ alone. 